0: I don't know if you remember this or not, but um, some of you do. Some of you have asked me if I'm going to return to it. But um, the last sermon before kind of COVID hit and we kind of changed everything that we were were doing, um, I had preached a part one on Jesus' teaching on marriage and sexuality. And I finished that sermon with a bit of a cliffhanger that— The Christian story offers the best story about marriage and sexuality, and that that sermon was coming next. So three years later, next week, I'm going to preach part two of living God's better story around marriage and sexuality. And so that's going to be next week. Um, but this week I wanted to, as we start back into Matthew, uh, give a bit of an overview of the gospel of Matthew. It's, it's been a few years, a few things has have happened since then. Um, and some of you weren't here uh, during that time. And so I want to give you a bit of an overview of the book of Matthew and talk about some of the main themes of the gospel. Um, and then talk a little bit about where we're going to go and how we're going to approach the last part of Matthew between now and uh, resurrection Sunday in April. So with all of that, um, Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you for the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These, these books that were written to tell us about the life and ministry and death and resurrection of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, as we enter into to Matthew, God, I pray that we would be truly connected with Jesus, that we would come to meet him in his own words, in the words about him, in the teachings that he gives to us about what it means to be a disciple. I pray that we would meet meet Jesus in the pages of Matthew. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So I want to start today with another quote that i found on the internet okay this 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 one was not written by artificial intelligence though okay this one this one was written by our friend joe langston if you remember joe and janice um i really miss them i think they need to move back here from cleveland i hope they're doing well there but we really miss them like for them to come back Um, but he posted something on facebook that i thought was just really applicable to the sermon that i wanted to preach today and so i just want to share that with you he says this He says, I wonder if we focus too much on salvation and not enough on the relationship that it opens up. Discipleship then looks more like behavior modification and less like an invitation to a deeper, more intimate relationship with God. A disciple then white knuckles life trying to think, say, and do the right things instead of being transformed from glory to glory by the renewing of the mind. The Holy Spirit is then relegated to a bitter judge that sees all of our wrongs and calls us to task, rather than a benevolent sensei leading us to a better path. I think Joe is right on here. I think this first sentence in particular is great. I wonder if we focus too much on salvation and not enough on the relationship that it opens up. But I would actually take it a, a step further, Joe, if you are listening today or later this week and we can talk about this. I would say that, that salvation is relationship with God. Salvation is relationship with God. John 17 says that eternal life is knowing God. And knowing Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Eternal life, that's another word for salvation, is knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Knowing God in the Bible is also not only about getting all of our doctrines right, though that is important. Knowledge in the Bible, knowledge, knowing someone is always about interactive relationship. Uh, The Hebrew word for to know is synonymous with sex. The King James version will often tell us this that a husband knew his wife and she conceived. Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. Knowledge is about not only about knowing facts and figures in our head, but it's about this intimate relational knowing of one another. This intersection of knowledge that comes through knowing God. So knowledge of God as communicated in the Bible, is not only about having the right facts about God in our head, though again, that's important. If you think the wrong things about the person that you're in relationship, the relationship isn't going to go very well. But it's not only about knowing the right things about God. It's about knowing God. It's about intimacy. It's about interactive relationship. And there is a particular view of salvation that is often offered to us that defines salvation only as a future event. Salvation is something that we are waiting for. Salvation is something that happens after we die and we go to heaven and it's the pearly gates and the golden streets and all that sort of images that we have in our mind. Salvation is often offered to us as a future event. But I don't know about you, friends, but I need salvation today. There is so much in me, if left to myself, if left to my own desires, my own wants, my own way of seeing things, that I will destroy myself. There is lust in me that will destroy my marriage. There is pride in me that will destroy my friendships and my calling as a pastor. There is anger and grief in me. That, makes, that could make it hard for me to get up in the morning. I can get worried about money and being secure about my future that it will keep me up at night. There are addictions that I am prone to in my life that will absolutely consume me if I am not rescued, saved today by Jesus. I am excited, and I've shared about this before, about I can get very excited how in that moment that happens to me every once in a while where this little switch happens in my brain and I realize that that someday in the future I actually am going to be face to face with Jesus in the age to come and I get really excited about that and that is salvation that is one part of our salvation but friends I need saved today I need to experience salvation today what about you do you need salvation today? Well, the good news of the gospel of Matthew is that salvation is available to you right now through a relationship with Jesus. That Salvation is available to you right now through a relationship with Jesus. The Bible gives us all sorts of um, different kinds of relationships that we have with God, father and son, father and child, father and daughter. Uh, we have the image of, of us as, as the bride of Christ. We have the image of, of Jesus who calls us his friend. There are lots of different images about the kind of relationship that we have with God. In the gospel of Matthew, I think the main image that we are given about our relationship with Jesus is the image of teacher and disciple. In the gospel of Matthew, Matthew shows us that Jesus is the greatest teacher who has ever lived and that he invites us right now in our own lives to live as his follower, to live as a disciple. We don't talk about disciples disciple in anywhere other than church. It's kind of a churchy word, but disciple means a follower. It means a student. It means an apprentice. It means someone who is learning from someone else how to do something. And the the gospel of Matthew shows us that Jesus is a great teacher who invites us to learn how to live life. Learn how to to live life in a way that, that leads to real eternal life a way that leads to real salvation. He, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus teaches us how to live our, our day-to-day life with him. And through his teaching, Jesus offers us a way to live our lives right now on the rock, on the solid ground of his teaching. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. i want to read verses 24 through 27. This teaching here comes at the very end of the gospel of Matthew. By the way, you can hop online and you can listen to all 40 sermons or so on Matthew. Um, I realized yesterday that I was trying to cram 40 sermons into to like one sermon today. And so we're not going to get into all of that. But if you listen to all of them, it'd be great in preparation for this, uh, the next couple months. But at the end of the sermon on the mount... Jesus talks about the wise and the foolish builders. And he says this, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. In Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus offers us teaching that saves us. It saves us from our lust, from our anger, from our pride, from our worry, from our addictions. He offers teaching that if we hear them and put them into practice, will help us to build our life here on solid ground. There are things, each one of us has things in our life that destroy us, that destroy uh, our bodies, that destroy our relationships, that destroy uh, the work that God's called us to do in the world. And Jesus knows all about what they are for you. And so when he came, he gives and offers guidance and instruction and teaching so that we can experience salvation from those things right now and offers us to, a way to right now enter into the eternal life that he offers to us. Eternal life is not only something that we're waiting for, it's something that we are invited to enter into now and to enjoy forever. You will hear a lot over the next few months about my, one of my favorite teachers, Dallas Willard. And one of the things that he says is that um, the gospel is not about getting into heaven when we die It's about getting to heaven before we die. To begin to live that eternal life right now. In the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what was the one thing that Jesus talked about more than anything else? Anybody want to guess? The kingdom of heaven. And it's really not even close. He talks about the kingdom of heaven um, in Matthew, or it's the kingdom of God in Mark and Luke. It means the same thing. Jesus used both of those phrases in his teaching, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. This was the one thing that Jesus spoke about the most. And in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives this persistent invitation for us to enter the kingdom of heaven by repenting and by following him by repenting from our own life and learning to live as followers of him. Matthew chapter four, verses 17 through 20. This is Jesus's first sermon, Matthew four, verses 17 through 20. So in verse 12, it talks about how Jesus began to preach in all these different areas in the region of Galilee. And in verse 17, it says this from that time on, Jesus began to preach And this was his message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That was Jesus's first sermon as he went about the region of Galilee. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Verse 18, as Jesus was walking beside the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. In this first sermon, I want to suggest to you that there are two things that we need to do in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. The first is to repent, and the second is to follow Jesus. To repent and to follow Jesus. The word repent means to simply to turn around. To turn around. And I I think when we think about repentance... We think about turning away from particular sins. We know that as Christians, we fall each day. We acknowledge those failures. We turn away from them, hopefully, and we we walk towards something else. I was gambling, and I repented, and so I turned away, and I don't gamble anymore. I looked at pornography all the time, and I I turned around, and I repented, and I'm not doing that anymore. I was a, a drunk or an addict, and I turned around, I repented, and I don't do that anymore. And all of us, if you know Jesus, you can name particular sins that you have repented from or that you are daily repenting from. That's one important part of repentance is turning away from those things that destroy us. Another part of repentance is that we are turning towards something better. We don't only turn away from those things that are bad. We turn towards something better. In particular, we turn toward Jesus and his way for us. Repentance is, yes, turning away from those particular bad things that we do that harm us, that destroy us, that destroy our relationships, and it's then reorienting our entire life around following Jesus. That's what repentance is about. Repent and follow Jesus. This is the way that we enter into the kingdom of heaven. One of the things that I I said often, back when we were looking at Matthew a couple years ago is that that Jesus is the smartest person who has ever lived. We don't really think about him as smart, right? But he is, he's the smartest person who ever lived. He knows more about the world. He knows more about human psychology. He knows more about how human relationships work and interact with one another. He knows more about all of that than anyone who has ever lived. He knows how life works. He knows how your relationships work and don't work. He knows all of the ways that we as human beings are easily tempted and led astray. He knows about your anger and your lusts and your pride and your desires. And if we hear his words and we follow his instruction, if we put them into practice, then he is going to help us build our life on a solid rock. He's going to help us to enter into that eternal kind of life that he wants us to enjoy Right now. And so in the, the Gospel of Matthew, we have this teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. It's it's three chapters. It's Jesus' longest extended teaching about what it means to live as one of his followers. And, and to say that the Sermon on the Mount is brilliant is, is still an understatement. It is so rich as it dives into all the dynamics of, of the human heart. And all all the ways that human beings do things, again, that destroy ourselves and our relationships and our communities. And so he addresses those things in some ways just one by one and shows us how to overcome them with his help, with his teaching, with his guidance, and to live a way that leads to life. In the Sermon on the Mount, he identifies all of these struggles that I've talked about already today, anger and lust and pride and worry And then he also addresses some of the the subtle things that happen in our hearts too. In addition to talking about like anger and adultery and, and divorce and lust and these kind of outwardly things that we all know are, are not good. He also addresses the ways that the good things that we do can also be done in a bad way. And so he talks about the way that we give our money to the poor and the way that we pray and the way that we fast. I mean, those are three great things, right? Giving money to the poor, praying and fasting, those are all great. But Jesus recognizes, and he's so wise and smart, that he knows that we as human beings can do those things in ways that actually also destroy our own soul. That we can do those in ways that are selfish. We can do those in ways that actually bring glory to ourselves rather than to God. We, we do those things in order to increase our own reputation rather than doing them for God. And so Jesus says, do those things in secret. Do them so that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. So in in the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, we read it, and it is such a a high, it's a high bar. It it is an impossible bar for us to meet perfectly every day. And because of that high bar, there is a a teaching out there that that says that the Sermon on the Mount actually isn't meant to be followed. It's just meant to teach us how impossible it is to follow Jesus. Have you ever heard that before? And I just think that that's the wrong way to read the Sermon on the Mount. It's true that you and I will not follow the Sermon on the Mount perfectly all of the time, every single day. But just because we can't follow it perfectly doesn't mean that we can't follow it at all. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is very clear. If we hear his words and put them into practice, then we'll be like a person who is building our house on a solid foundation. But if we hear his words and we don't put them into practice, we're building our life on the sand. As followers of Jesus, we believe that he is the smartest person who has ever lived, that he holds all of the treasures of knowledge in himself, and that his instructions in our life are not a burden for us, but they are for our good. They are for our good, they are for the good of our relationships, they are for the good of our community. And if we will follow them and put them into practice, that will be a way that we experience the eternal life that he offers to us. So I want to finish today by looking at one point in the Sermon on the Mount towards the very end of the sermon where Jesus begins to speak about his conclusion, his conclusion to his sermon. And It's in uh, chapter 7, verse 12, and then into 13 and 14. At one point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to wrap up his sermon. He's given us all of these instructions about how we interact with one another, um, how to um, think about money and our treasures, how to deal with worry and anxiety in our life, as well as those other things that we've talked about, lust and anger and pride, and all of those um, other issues that we've talked about earlier. And so he sort of wraps up his sermon in verse 12. And he says this, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This is the golden rule. And I think this is Jesus summarizing both the law and the prophets, as well as his interpretation of the law and the prophets, which is the Sermon on the Mount, is this golden rule to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then he moves to his His action point, a a good sermon will often have an action point at the end. He sums it up, and then he says, how can you now take action? Verse 13 and 14. So now enter. Enter through the narrow gate. Enter what? He's been talking about the kingdom of heaven. Enter the kingdom of heaven through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many people enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The way that this these verses are typically interpreted is that it's it's kind of Jesus' census of heaven and hell. It's about the population numbers of heaven and hell. And I don't think that that's quite right. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to enter through the narrow gate, the narrow way. The way that leads to life is often narrow and difficult. By by the way, we had a woman one time call our church. It was when Pastor Rick was here. He took the phone call, and this woman was very angry that our church was called Broadway Christian Church. Jesus thought that it was the narrow way. Like it's the name of the street. I don't care. It's the narrow way. I was glad he took that call and not me. I'm sure he handled it very well. But the point of this teaching, enter the kingdom of heaven through the narrow gate. He's telling us that in order to experience eternal life, that we're often going to need to be willing to do the hard thing. Every single day, you and I are faced with moments where it's very easy to focus on ourself, on our own comfort, our own pleasure, on getting what we want. And I and all of us take that road all the time. It's the easy way. The wide road is the easy road. It's the one that's easy to see. It's the one that we take without really thinking about it. But Jesus says that it's the narrow gate, the narrow way that actually leads to life, that leads to joy. But when we're taking it, it very rarely feels like the way that leads to life. It often feels very difficult and can even feel like death. And this is true. This principle is true in our spiritual life as well as in just our physical day-to-day life. Just think about this. Holding a job for some of you requires you to get up when the alarm clock goes off at 5.30 in the morning. And it's the narrow road to get out of bed. The wide road is hit the snooze button three or four times and you may get away with that one time, but do that three or four times and you no longer have a job or income anymore. The wide road will lead to destruction. But in that moment, the narrow road feels really hard. It feels like death to get out of bed that morning. But the narrow road is the one that leads to life. Getting physically healthy, exercise, that is the narrow road. Every day I know I should exercise, and every day I don't want to exercise. And then I exercise and I feel better afterwards. I certainly, after exercising every day for two or three months, I feel much better afterwards. That's the narrow road that leads. To life, playing an instrument well. It's really hard work to have the discipline to sit down and do the narrow way kind of work that helps you to be very good at an instrument. But if you do it and commit yourself to it, it leads to life. It leads to these brothers and sisters of ours who are able to lead us to life today in worship because they have put in the time and energy and they've taken the narrow way of daily disciplining themselves or regularly disciplining themselves to learn. The food that we eat, the best tasting food is almost always the cheapest and almost always the most unhealthy for us. But we're called to, we need to choose the, the narrow way food. Because <laughs> if we don't, if we're always using the, you get what I'm saying. In our day-to-day life, the wide road is the easy one. And it leads to destruction almost without fail. It's the narrow, hard way that leads to life. And I don't know why this is God's design for the world. I don't know if it's God's design plus the presence of the curse and sin and the fact that everything that we do has thorns and thistles and it's difficult for food to grow out of the ground. I don't know, but this is the way that it is. The good things that we want to accomplish are always hard to do. I think that's just a great mystery for us to reflect on. But Jesus is telling us that in our relationship with him and in our relationships with other people and in following him, that his teaching is the narrow gate. His teaching is the narrow road that leads to life. And let me just give you one example from his teaching. Jesus teaches us that we should love our enemies and do good to those who hurt us. We should love our enemies and do good to those who hurt us. Is that easy to do? It is a narrow road decision to love your enemies and to do good to those who hurt us. When somebody hurts us, the wide road decision is to hurt them back, to hold a grudge, to get revenge. But where does that lead? Where does that lead, first of all, to you personally? Resentment, anger, frustration. What does it do to communities when we always take the wide road decision? when we're always getting revenge on one another, that's violence, right? We see that everywhere. People taking the wide road decision, not loving their enemies and doing good to those who hurt them, but just taking revenge for themselves. When we forgive those who hurt us, it feels like we're losing. It feels like we're dying, but it's the only way that leads to life. Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. That is the narrow-gate, narrow-road decision. When someone hits us or insults us, the wide gate decision is revenge. If they hurt me, I hurt them back. That is the way of the world. It is the wide road decision. This is just one example of many examples that we can give in Jesus' teaching of the way in which the hard way, the narrow way, is the one that actually leads to life. And so that's what we're going to explore in these next 10 weeks or so in the Gospel of Matthew looking at Jesus' teaching through the lens of the narrow way. Jesus persistently calls us to experience salvation, to live in the reality of the kingdom of heaven by entering through the narrow way. And so next week in Matthew chapter 19, we are presented with a very hard teaching on marriage and sexuality. It's a narrow way teaching, and the disciples say so. Like right there in the teaching, gives them a the teaching. He says, this is really hard. Week after that, we're going to hear a narrow way teaching about money and our possessions and how we handle our money and possessions in a way that is difficult and hard, but leads to life. And on and on as we go through most of Matthew. Every single day, you and I are presented with fork in the road decisions, with wide and easy ways, a narrow in hard ways. And following Jesus is a narrow way, but it is the way that leads to life. And the question for us today is, do we believe him? Do we believe that he's the smartest person that has ever lived? Do we believe that in him he holds all of the treasures of human knowledge? And that if we follow him that it will lead to life. And even in those times when it feels like death to follow him, That in that death, he is bringing about new life in us. He's bringing about resurrection life. He's bringing about love and peace and joy in us and in our communities. Do we believe that? That's the calling for us. And Jesus says that if we will choose to follow him, if we will hear his words and put them into practice, then we will be like people who have built our life on a solid rock. So, Lord, we ask for your help in this. We can't do it by ourselves. We thank you for your spirit who guides, is present with us right now, who speaks to us through uh, your word, who changes our hearts and enables us with your power, with your energy to enter the kingdom through the narrow gate. So God, I pray that we would experience your kingdom and your life um, as we choose day by day your narrow way for us. Amen.